this episode, Politics and Puppets, Ryan sits down with puppeteer Carrie Morris to discuss her project, The Firefighters, and the ways she uses unconventional and experiential art to address issues such as redlining, development, and water justice in Detroit. This episode was recorded remotely during the COVID-19 pandemic. everyone. My name is Ryan Myers Johnson. I am coming to you from Detroit, Michigan. I'm an artist and curator and I am so excited to be joined here today with Carrie Morris, director and innovative puppeteer who choreographs handmade objects to tell stories. Welcome Carrie. Thank you Ryan for talking today. We're really just exploring, you know, the work that you presented with ArtX Detroit and, you know, what's going on with your creative practice now. So would you mind telling us a little bit of who you are and your creative work? Sure. Um, so as, as you kind of provided that eloquent um, summary, I've been working with puppets and performing objects as a director for maybe... I think like 10 or 15 years now. Um, my background is in directing theater. Um, I currently run a small nonprofit um, in the Northwest uh, neighborhood of Detroit. It's on the North side of Hamtramck um, in the um, West Campo, East Davison, Bangletown area. Um, we have a small intimate theater that's about uh, 40 seat capacity and then we also have a 1.3 acre green space um, that we operate as an outdoor amphitheater and we present performance works there um, and uh, we also um, maintain it as a public green space when it's not actively being programmed. So um, the work that I did for AXD, um, that gave us an opportunity to revisit some of the workshops and work we had been doing on a project uh, called the Firefighter Project, which um, was based on a series of interviews, audio interviews that I had been doing with um, Detroit Fire Department staff and specifically this one group of firefighters. Um, those interviews had taken place over, I think the course of five or six years. And the AXD presentation allowed um, us to revisit those interviews with the current cohort of puppeteers and company members that we've been working with for the past couple of years, gave us the opportunity to rehearse with some of those audio recordings and also to get some um, puppet coaching from some national artists. And what that time, um, that presentation was really great um, and that iteration, the Firefighter Project, um, was very rich and we developed some really great material, um, but it also gave me a chance to think about that material, you know, that I had been working with for however many years in kind of a larger context. Um, most of those interviews were recorded pre-Detroit bankruptcy and then right after Detroit bankruptcy because I've been doing them for so long. And it gave me a chance to think about um, some of the qualities and the content of things those firefighters brought up, um, not as just a system that was specific to what Detroit firefighters go through working in a city that um, has its share of blight and has had its share of problems with arson and fire, um, but also thinking about those systems on a national level um, and thinking mm. about this idea of what the history is within um, a physical landscape 
of invisible processes that we may not uh, hear a lot about or know a lot about, and what the physical evidence can be that's left over from those processes. And that's, that's an idea that then generated comparisons to, um, well, what are, these, what are the historic precedents to some of the issues that we're seeing here? What are the national precedents? Um, what are contemporary day? Um, uh, yeah, what are historic precedents? So um, it, it really kind of was the springboard for some of the um, threads that started an, a larger project of which the firefighter um, component, the firefighter interviews were one piece of, um, but really expanded the work in scale, in terms of scale and scope. Um, and, wow. and that project uh, is called The Weight of Air. And The Weight of Air looks at, um, again, this idea of um, how do we use puppetry and performing arts and audio interviews as a way to illuminate the physical effects of invisible processes on the landscape around us. That's a lot. You've got a lot going on. So let me unpack some of that because from the place that you're working to the mediums that you're working with to the people that you're working with, um, there's just a whole world of interest. So the first thing I actually want to ask you is what inspired you to start interviewing Detroit firefighters? When I think of puppetry, I don't necessarily think about the stories of Detroit firefighters. Uh, I had participated in a women's directing festival called Boxfest Detroit. The festival pays for one director to attend an acting and directing workshop at the Purple Rose Theater in Chelsea. So that was, um, my piece was voted as somebody that they would want to sponsor doing that. So I was able to take a three-week acting directing workshop with um, Guy Sandville, who is the artistic director at the Purple Rose. And in that workshop, I met a bunch of different actors and directors um, that I'm actually still, some of whom I'm still working with. This was in like, I don't know, 2010, maybe 2011. This was a long time ago. And one of the people that took that workshop was an actor who was also a full-time firefighter for the city of Detroit. And uh, Cameron Pichin is his name. And at the, um, at the time, I think, oh man, I can't remember the ladder company that he was um, the driver for, but he was the engine driver. And um, I had started talking to him about his work in Detroit and he was interested in my practice in Detroit. And I, at the same time, was asked to appear as a speaker in a morning, seri morning series that you may remember called Creative Mornings Detroit. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Yeah, I, I, um, they were doing a morning series about art and fear and they asked mm. me to appear on it. And I was like, well, I don't really know if what I do is, um, you know, I don't know if there's like so much fear involved really, but when I think about art and fear, there's this one person I just met who I think really actually it would be really great. So, so I asked if we could go, like my friend Cameron and I could go on this talk together and we did a panel discussion and it was really interesting. And I, I asked if I could just interview him more about what he did. And then talking to him, he introduced me to other people in the engine house and they introduced me to other people at other engine houses. And it just kind of, everybody was really supportive and, and happy to, um, yeah, happy to contribute to the project. It just became really clear that there were so many. This was also around the same time that I think the Stephen Colbert show, like, or maybe it was some newspaper, um, had put out a video of um, just the lack of resources that a lot of Detroit fire department uh, engine houses were trying to work with. At that time, like, file their reports online, but the city didn't pay for the engine houses to have internet, so the firefighters had wow. to, like, pay out of their own pockets for internet so they could do their job, and then someone had set up 
a Coke can with some change on it, one of the firefighters, because their bell that announced that they had like a fire call, their bell had been broken, but this was a jerry-rigged system that would fall over and be the alert that they had to like get on the truck and go fight a fire. So they were, there was a lot of national attention about like what, um, just how they were doing their job with, with lack of resources. And so I thought that that was something that needed more of a spotlight, more people needed to know about that. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, a statement about um, illuminating invisible processes. So it sounds like some of your work may have been illuminating some of the things that the fire, the, this hidden world that firefighters are dealing with. So I guess it gives me the impression that this is not your elementary take on firefighters. Sometimes we think about firefighters as, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a nurse. But this is a more mature look at um, some of the things that firefighters are dealing with. Totally. And I appreciate your, your take. Sometimes I get so wrapped up in like what we're working on that I forget about explaining the context behind some of the puppetry styles that we employ, mm. that I employ in my work, um, because I just assume that everybody knows. But there, there's um, a lot of people have assumptions about puppetry that are associated with like kids programming um, and educational hey. programming. Uh, I think last year, maybe a year or two ago, was like the first time that I started to make work that was specifically all ages. Um, it hasn't been some, a, a form of puppetry that I um, am super versed in. So this piece specifically, the Firefighter Project and also the Weight of Air, um, it's very much a piece for adult audiences. The content and the pace is very much for adults. That being said, we, you know, in the Weight of Air performances that we did in um, this past January, uh, late January, there were kids and, and um, family members, like all ages family members of performers and different community members in our audiences, and they were pretty engaged by it. But it's not, it's not a show that's like specifically for kids. Part of the reason for me using puppets and performing objects, I think there's a, a richness there formally um, in having uh, an object that can reflect some of the processes that may be um, experienced by the physical body in a way that um, we wouldn't be able to see if we used a live actor. For the landscape, um, I think puppet landscapes, um, we can present in, in miniature um, and get a sense of the great scale upon mm. which some of these processes are affecting our landscape so that it's not a story about one house or one neighborhood, it's a story about the whole city. And we can show, um, we can show the whole city. And, and as we work on this project with our team of you know, collaborators that are encompassing artists from across the country, we're seeing that a lot of the processes that we're, we're kind of talking about within this show, um, you know, they're, they're also not specific to Detroit. Um, these historic processes uh, happen in many cities. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of these historic processes. I'm, I'm still thinking about um, Detroit and our sort of unique relationship with fire. Um, you know, Detroit has had, you know, a history of, you know, arsons and home abandonment and certain things that certainly have affected the overall landscape of Detroit. Can you illuminate a little bit more, you know, what are the type of processes that you're exploring not just with fire, but it sounds like there are other social issues um, that you're working through. One of the things that came out of um, this kind of long-term interviews with the 
this group of firefighters pre and post bankruptcy was we we I did um, I think in 2013 or 2014 I did an iteration of the project and um, was focusing on the firefighters' stories. Um, and one of the things that happened uh, uh, that, that resulted from the negotiations with the bankruptcy is that um, the firefighters' insurance uh, after post-retirement, after they retired, was no longer paid for by the city. And so um, one of the firefighters in the group of um, guys that I had interviewed, uh, he ended up retiring and then um, uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and um, ended up passing from that. And it, I made the connection in my mind that um, there is some, there was something to um, the late stage stage diagnosis that had happened and uh, a lack of insurance coverage, like quality insurance coverage that may not have happened if that negotiation, if that insurance had been paid for. For me, it became about um, uh, what happens when um, these larger systems are not caring for the people that they are asking to um, work within these systems. Mm -hmm. So I, kind of, I guess I bring up that as like one early example of, um, that started from firefighter stories, but then seemed to point to um, larger systems that I wanted mm -hmm. to look at. Um, thinking about the effect of um, fire on Detroit's landscape and also the effect of um, uh, blight on Detroit's landscapes as we were doing these interviews for um, for the firefighters um, this past couple of years, we had a neighborhood advisory committee that was very interested in doing audio interviews of neighborhood elders. And so we figured out with them a series of interview questions where we could incorporate some of the responses into this history of the city. And um, many of those uh, neighborhood elders were talking about um, uh, the businesses that had been in Black Bottom that were then um, uh, eliminated when the highways came through and their memories mm -hmm. of being children and playing near there. Um, but also some of those businesses that they mentioned were um, banking institutions, Black banks. And um, some of the research that we did started to um, look at the establishment of the Freeman's Bank um, and the trends in um, uh, banking systems and use of those banking systems by people of color nationally. Um, and uh, I think one of the points of research we came up with was a lack of trust in the banking system and something like 30% of, of current families of color don't, don't bank because of that lack of trust currently now. And just thinking about um, that long history of uh, wealth within this country and the systems that um, are making that wealth accessible and inaccessible to many people. Right. It's another part that I think figures into this idea of property ownership, of um, quality of life. Uh, and, and again, it's an issue that's not specific to this city, though we can see the on, the on the ground physical effects of it here, but it's an issue that, that spreads widely. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes perfect sense. There is a very strong thread of uh, social justice storytelling and advocacy and activism within your work. So um, I commend you. And those are some amazingly complex and difficult topics that you're exploring. And what a unique and accessible way to explore it through puppetry. Um, and just to give the audience also um, 
a bigger picture of the type of um, puppetry that you're diving into. I think, you know, when we're looking at puppetry in American context, we often think about hand puppets or, uh, or you know, if we want to take another step forward, you know, thinking Jim Henson, um, but you're drawing from sort of a worldwide diaspora, right, of uh, different types of techniques. Yeah, and that, thank you again for um, um, getting to kind of the nuts and bolts of some of the formal qualities that, that we use. Um, I was uh, introduced to puppetry by a puppeteer who, who now um, is based in LA named Janie Geyser, who is really great. Um, and, and in terms of American puppetry, um, she comes at puppetry from um, also a filmmaker's perspective. After, after that was in, as an undergrad in college and as a graduate student, I then was able to study with an Indonesian artist and I spent a couple of years in Indonesia um, working with and studying from uh, Indonesian shadow puppeteers who are specifically, um, uh, if you have seen Indonesian shadow puppetries, they're very, very detailed. Shadow puppetry is deeply entrenched within day-to-day -day, um, life and culture in Indonesia. Um, almost every president in the past like century within Indonesia has likened themselves or been likened to a certain um, shadow puppet character from the canon. Wow. It's it's really, really interesting. Their puppets are, are very detailed and it's a whole um, trade and uh, it has a real cultural relevance. It's it's that that um, that that some that I, I don't I can't think of any 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 uh, puppet form here that really we would have the same that has the same impact. So it's a very special thing over there. Um, and also the act of live performance within that um, puppet mm. show um, is done by these uh, puppeteers. And it's it's kind of more like a baseball game than, a, um, than like a sit down 20 minute performance. Like it'll start at eight, um, everybody goes, it's open air. People kind of talk through the scenes. They, are, it's, they already know, but they watch the action scenes and you'll go get some food. Maybe you'll take a nap. The show will go from 8 p.m. to like 6 a.m sometimes and tell wow. these huge epics from the Mahabharata and the Ramayana and um, it's this whole thing. So I spent a few years there um, really loving the deliberateness and the intensity and the craftsmanship of the form of those puppets and also the um, community-based nature of how the storytellers would incorporate the audience into their story. Um, and every small village that uh, one of those puppeteers went to, they would spend time during the day talking to local people. And then that night, they would incorporate some of the local gossip and stuff into the shows they were doing. So you have this thing with, you know, Rama and Sita, but then they're also working in like, you know, who didn't pay their tab at the fast food restaurant down the street, you wow. know, you know, like making fun. So, um, so that is really, so that's, that was my early sort of training, um, for the firefighter project and the weight of air project specifically. Um, we were able to bring in, I, my, my nonprofit, Carrie Moore's Arts Productions, um, we were able to bring in a puppet artist, um, who is now based in Chicago, um, but has spent a long time in New York named Tom Lee, um, who is really, really skilled at a bunraku style puppet form. Um, bunraku is a Japanese form, um, usually multiple operators, and it's known for, um, being very, very, um, gesturally resonant. So, um, really realistic, um, very realistic. It's usually three people on a puppet, um, but, um, 
can be used with two people or can be used with five people, depending on the puppet mm. and what you want it to do. And for me, trying to figure out uh, the stories that we're telling, um, which form makes the most sense uh, to employ. In some scenes where we're talking about um, things that were in the past or some scenes that are specifically about elements of fire, sometimes shadow puppetry techniques mm. may work best because of the ability to fade in and out of images. Um, the um, uh, ability to use light as an illumination source and the manipulation of that light. Um, both of those qualities are really great at speaking to um, memory and the idea mm. of um, memory and light and heat sources. Whereas in some of the um, work with telling specifically the firefighter story, the idea of the engagement of the firefighters' physical bodies um, in these realities and what happens when gravity, they're released from gravity. Um, that is something that um, the impact, the, the narrative impact and the visual impact of seeing a very realistic looking, um, effigized, miniaturized um, firefighter running through space and then floating uh, and trying to figure out how to get some connection to land or some um, anchor um, that's that's the best form. Uh, that turns out to be the best form to tell that aspect of the story. So so we plug in a lot of different forms, um, and it's really the form is is dependent on the um, the content, the function of the narrative that we're trying to tell. You have an incredible uh, amount of resources. It seems at your disposal in terms of um, historical and cultural practices in regards to puppetry. And I love the idea that all of these different um, elements are coming together to tell these um, critically relevant um, stories in Detroit. And um, just in thinking about like your adaptive, you know, your ability to adapt as an artist and as an organizer, um, CMAP has been, Carrie Moore's arts production has continued its work um, despite uh, the quarantine conditions that we're currently in. Um, with COVID-19. Can you talk a bit about how you were able to continue with your Puppet Slam Art Festival and how um, the, situation, the situation of the pandemic has affected your art practice? Oh now? man, I mean, I think, I, think we're, I think all artists, we're all still figuring it out. You know, we're all still figuring it out. I feel so grateful that we um, have had the work that we have and that, um, you know, that we, that we have our health and that, um, yeah, I, I, what can I say about that? I feel like I'm still in the center of it. So I feel like nothing is figured mm. out. <laughs> mm. I will say that, um, we, like everybody else spent the first few weeks trying to get our heads around what was going on, but also just making sure that, um, the staff that we, that support what we do and the artists that we know were all able to get online. So that meant, um, sometimes getting equipment to people, getting hotspots to people, um, figuring out how we could continue to employ um, uh, artists that we know in our network and then try to expand some of that, those production stipends. Um, we had planned to do a, a puppet slam in April. Um, we planned that from the beginning of the year. And then when everything uh, hit the fan, we said, okay, well, we have this production stipend money. We're going to, so many people, so many artists we know have lost employment in one way or another. So we're gonna get that out. Um, so we usually ask between like five and seven artists to be in the Puppet Slam. And this year we asked 25, um, just as a way to get to get some of that um, distributed. 
and also because I kind of knew that, um, I mean, it's day to day, but sometimes we just don't have the bandwidth, you know? So I was like, well, we'll ask, um, we'll ask all of these people. And I, I have a feeling that some people may not have capacity right now. And, uh, and we also wanted to make it really clear that, um, these new works should just be what people made with pe things people have around their house. They shouldn't mm. be like working on a magnum opus with multiple people and rehearsing and <laughs> dangerous conditions. You know, we had to make that really clear because otherwise I think people would sometimes it is really nice to delve into a new project when there's a bunch of stuff going on. So, um, that, that was really, uh, that felt, I was really inspired and like humbled and grateful for all of the artists that participated and for the amount of creativity and like drive that they all put in to getting those pieces together and they were so beautiful they just looked the puppets looked great the effects look great. like they just did such a great job um, i'm going to share the youtube link with you so you can watch it and they can if axd wants to post that on their um page or something as part of this amazing yeah do you feel that the translation to an online production uh works particularly well for puppetry or what sort of challenges um, are, are we encountering? You know, it is still a live art form. It is. And I, um, the way, the easiest way for us to transition it for that slam, because it was so fast, um, based on our, me and my staff's knowledge of uh, like live, like Zoom platforms and stuff like that, um, we, asked all of the participating artists what would be easiest for them if they would want to do a live performance or if they would want to do pre-recorded and then send us the video and then we would um, do a live hosting of those video casts and most people agreed video uh, pre-recorded video so that's what we ended up doing um, I think we did I, I think in terms of getting creative content online for us with that um, slam we did an okay job with that. I think now the learning curve for us is how to facilitate audience management because mm. there are also many people like myself, um, there are also many people in the audience who, um, you know, we're all learning the Zoom thing together. And, and, and then when Zoom malfunctions and some of it's <laughs> yeah. like the mute all upon entry button doesn't work anymore and there's 160 people on your internet, like, da, 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 da. and then also there's another 25 texting you being like, Hey, I think you should, you know, and, and also, so it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of audience management and it's also trying to figure out the platform that, that works for us. So that's our learning curve right now. And I think, I know nationally, we've been in conversation with, um, the national puppet slam network and five or six different puppet slams all over the country. And they're all trying to figure out the same thing. Um, yeah. so for uh, producers and curators, I think that um, the transition is um, uh, that for us, that's the next step is like audience management. And then, you know, the other project that we are, again, really grateful to be working on is this collaboration with the Detroit Zoo. Um, and so we were commissioned uh, in late 2019 to work with zoo staff on a series of all ages puppet shows about some of their um, the animals in their care and those shows will premiere on the zoo's face facebook channel facebook page i think saturday june 6th is the first one all the way through the end of august um sure. so that has been really great but it's also we have learned a lot about um this idea of like the webcam if that's your kind of performance portal um 
in a live audience, you've got all these people sitting and there's this energy and um, they may be able to, you know, see this person sneeze over here. They may be able to see like what's off stage over there. But when we're doing these live performances, everything along the edges of my camera is on stage and then it's not. So this idea of like entry, like where's our entry and where's our exit as live performers, and also the idea of scale. I'm as I'm like doing this, I'm talking through with Ryan on this video chat that we're on, and I'm putting my hand really <laughs> close to our camera. And if it says something on my hand like, "Oh, this is really close," and then you pull it way far away, and it's really big. Um, so there's all these technological things to play with, and I think. Tori um, Ashford is our performer for the first Sue show, and we're in rehearsals with her right now. Um, and we're approaching those technological um, components as just another like creative tool to work with in our show. Wow. I love this conversation around creating your new theater space within a digital space. You know, we've been having a lot of conversations with artists, and obviously I'm also online and seeing, you know, We've got to get back to normal. We've got to get back together. But what an interesting technical and creative challenge to kind of reimagine um, the online digital space as a as a new platform or a new theater for you um, to engage with audiences. So this has been quite a massive conversation, and I think that we could spend we could spend hours just going back to puppetry and, and firefighters, and so. I just commend you for the vastness of your work and for the issues that you are um, tackling, especially um, in this time of great change for the city of Detroit. So with that, I'm Ryan Myers Johnson. Thank you for having this conversation with us. Coming at you from Detroit, Michigan. I'm Carrie Morris, director of Carrie Morris Arts Production. Thank you again so much to Ryan and to ASD. Um, and I am coming to you also from Detroit, Michigan. Thank you for listening. AXD Living X Podcast is a production of Root of Two and made possible with support from the Kresge Foundation. Mixed and edited by Red Carpet Lounge. Music for the series is by Pamela Wise. To find out more about the projects and artists, visit artixdetroit.com and download the companion Living X catalog featuring all 22 commissioned AXD works.